0: He is a lifelong learner who is fascinated by the intrinsic causes of human movement. He looks at the patient not only through the lens of anatomy and neurophysiology, but is also sensitive to their fears in relation to their lack of movement. He is a Titleist Performance Instructor and Instructor of the Facial Distortion Model, a person who just wants to help his community and those around him. Enjoy this conversation with Ken Nakasone, Doctor of Physical Therapy. My name is Jonathan from Vcom Auburn, and what I really appreciate about
1: OMT is that it's a good first step to go to um, if, when you are dealing with an acute or a chronic illness that uh, may prevent you from having to have surgery. Prevent you from having to take, uh, you know, medicines, um, or even if it doesn't prevent you from having surgery, it can prolong you from, you know, increase the amount of time that you
0: can uh, play your sport before you have to have that surgery. Um, And uh, I do appreciate that, uh, you know, with medications, there's a lot of side effects, um, and I think that
1: OMM does a pretty good job of kind of limiting side effect profile while also, you know, increasing,
0: you know, kind of biomechanical kind of um athletic performance uh with that kind of stuff ken can you hear me okay yes i can awesome okay and just so you know anything can be edited out of this podcast okay sounds good not set in stone yeah okay Thanks again for joining the Osteopathic Manipulative Medicine podcast, where we share clinical pearls related to OMT. Our guest is coming to us from the beautiful Hawaiian island of Oahu. He is a doctor of physical therapy who is the co-owner of Inquisitive, a business to help athletes achieve their peak performance. Within the business, there is a massage and mobility lab, an opportunity for education on injury prevention and reconditioning also opportunities for personal training, and even an avian golf club fitting studio. He has numerous publications such as The Effect of Dynamic Intermittent Hypoxic Conditioning on Ontario Oxygen Saturation, among others. He is a prolific speaker and educator of the fascial distortion model, teaching even the St. Louis Cardinals baseball organization about FDM back in 2019. So thank you for being with us with us Dr. Kenneth Nakasone. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, really appreciate it. You're on Hawaii time, I am on the East Coast. It's 5:30 here and it's 11:30 there. Got it. Correct. So yeah, I appreciate you taking time out of your your busy schedule, your business to to speak with us. I oh, know, it's definitely
1: my pleasure anytime we can collaborate with others and you know just educate more people so we can take care of our communities number one goal there
0: yeah absolutely yeah before we dive into our topic just about how you learned about fdm and the clinical relevance that it's provided to you in your business i wanted to get to know you a little bit more as a person so what what kind of hobbies do you have outside of your business and the physical therapy world
1: uh, you know, I think, uh, I've always enjoyed sports, you know, whether it's volleyball, basketball, you know, um, ultimate Frisbee, whatever, when I was younger, but, uh, you know, I, I always used to say, I'll play, take up golf once I, I don't want to run and jump anymore as much. And, uh, that happened many, <laughs> uh, about 10 years ago. So, uh, you know, but it's a, it's a crazy fun sport and a lot of good, um, things that we can learn from it and ended up going through the Tightlist performance Institute programming for their, uh, you know, golf fitness instructor, um, on the medical level. So, you know, it led into a business, uh, that I could go into, uh, and really enjoy it. So, you know, mostly golf, you know, sporadically now because there's so many different projects to work on, which I find a lot of enjoy and, and uh, kind of gratification, uh, right now. So that's pretty much been it. Um, just traveling as much as I can, you know, getting
0: through this pandemic. So, sure, sure, yeah. Cut out there just for a second. I had a incoming phone call, so I apologize for <laughs> yeah, that. Not a problem. But um, so golf, and there are are, I'm sure, amazing golf courses there on Oahu. I have not. I've been to Oahu a number of times, but have not golfed there.
1: No, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's some beautiful courses. There's some. Courses that are a little less than desirable, but still nevertheless fun. Uh, you know, any
0: day on the golf course is always a good day. Uh, so yeah, can't beat it. Sure. <laughs> and I, I think that's the dream of all of us to be able to go to work and actually enjoy it. it sounds <laughs> like you've, you've, you've found that.
1: Yeah, uh, it took a little long for me to get there, but it doesn't matter. It's my journey and, you know, we can kind of help people find their way to their their path
0: yeah for sure and so as a a golf i don't know would you say trainer from the medical standpoint or
1: Mm -hmm. um the the credential is is a golf fitness instructor through the Titus performance institute but um yeah they have a couple different uh i guess pathways so medical fitness and and the golf uh,
0: professional so I went down the medical side. Can you explain a little bit about what that entails?
1: Sure Uh, you know the level there's three levels uh, for TPI Um, the first level is the basics where everyone will take the the edge modules or seminars together Um, so you'll have again your golf professionals your physical therapists athletic trainers physicians chiropractors uh, and you'll later in the uh, level two and level threes uh, dive in deeper to the specifics so for me in the medical side level two was looking at a, a movement assessment where it was more the what basic movements can we do how does it relate to the golfer from a physical standpoint because the golf professional will be taking care of swing and course management and club fitting and whatnot and so we were looking at how well does the body have to be in all its capacity, mobility, stability, power, agility, and everything. And so, you know, we would do the assessments because Titleist has a a huge population, you know, amateurs and professionals where they were able to uh, break down movements and make some correlations. And then the level three is basically the, uh, what do you call, the treatments or interventions, you know, given the assessments we find from level two's uh,
0: coursework so you're you're really analyzing someone's swing and what muscles they're using what muscles they need to strengthen where they might have a fascial distortion that you need to fix yeah (laughs) yes that
1: that's that's the that's the fun i mean you know I'll, i'll oftentimes not even look at their swing until probably late in the first initial assessment or if not uh you know later in the in the sessions that I see them because the correlations that we can see through some of the uh, uh, movement assessments that they may lack, uh, I can extrapolate what their swing probably looks like because of a physical limitation. And, you know, being, you know, doing this for years, it's becoming a little bit easier and easier. And it's no real major difference from somebody in football or baseball or volleyball. If we understand how movement happens um, and, We can break it down to, you know, the anatomical factors and then the physiological factors. That really is the fun part of what I do and why I do it. Um, You know, to just kind of really try to help people get to, you know, a higher level of performance.
0: Hmm. So you have all levels of athletes coming to see you. Amateurs, Uh, professionals, people that just love golf. Yeah, absolutely. I
1: mean, and on all sports too. So, you know, we'll... Uh, you know, see in addition to my partner, business partner here, um, you know, we'll see quite a bit of sports, you know, volleyball, basketball, um, bowling, cross country, track, uh, you name it. Mm-hmm. And then I also take care of some of the kids at a local Catholic high school here. So yeah, that adds to the whole mix.
0: Wow sounds like you're wearing a number of hats
1: <laughs> sometimes too many so it's a matter of <laughs> learning learning how to say no sometimes uh, i'm still it's a work in progress
0: yeah yeah um let's see let's um second question for you what sure. do you have any book recommendations for audience you know,
1: um, there's a, it, it seems like a very simple question, but uh, it's really hard I have to kind of hem and haul and thinking about that. Um, you know, I, I think I really uh, I really enjoyed the book um, called The Slight Edge by Jeff Olson. And it basically talks about how, you know, the seemingly insignificant things that we do in our daily lives, um, you know, over time, because we're creatures of habit, we will become what it is, whether it's good or bad. It's because of the sum product of all the things we've done. So if we're not where we want to be, or if we are somewhere, but I want to enhance that, it's like, okay, let's get back to those daily things. Let's go get back to those smaller things and then get back onto the path of, you know, uh, writing ourselves or, you know, improving what we have. So it's been a good book to frame our mindset in terms of how to move forward with it all.
0: Interesting. Is it, is it kind of geared towards like good habit formation?
1: Uh, I believe so. And you can say that it's, you know, going to be talking about um, I always have a a a graph, you know, as a visual. So, you know, basically whatever, you know, homeostatic line is, you know, horizontally drawn and, you know, where we want to be is on, you know, above the line and where we may not want to be is below the line. And so, Mm -hmm. You know, wherever we find ourselves, uh, you know, in life or in business or, you know, in, in athletic endeavors, um, you know, we can analyze where we are and then say, hey, you know what, I need to make some changes. And it might not be the drastic, you know, change because sometimes that's where people, you know, have a setback because it's too much too soon. So the little things that we can do, make a small little change in habit, a small little change in thinking um, will allow us to be able to create you know, the, the things that we are shooting for,
0: striving for. Yeah, absolutely. I, Oh, back in the day, I was studying to become a Catholic priest actually. And in the seminary, they would always tell us fidelity in the little details will lead to fidelity or excellence in the big, the big things in life. Isn't that the truth? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Words of wisdom. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Mm -hmm. And what about a movie or documentary recommendation? Oh, um, you know, that's a good one. I, I, I'm not
1: the biggest movie person. Um, I think I, you know, the the funny thing is as a kid growing up, I didn't really want to study much at all. And, you know, every chance I could play or, you know, hang out with friends, that was always the first, second and third choice. But, um, you know, now I I look at anything on YouTube. I look at anything um, in terms of, you know, dealing with movement or, you know, uh, environmental uh, effects on our body. And it's a little mm. nerdy, but, um, you know, just I haven't watched much stuff recently besides things pertaining to. The model or or movement analysis so sorry for my boring answer there <laughs> <laughs> well but I, but i do live in hawaii so you know that's the other thing is try to get outside a little bit more so that's yeah. my uh it's my hawaiian answer there <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, it sounds like you don't have much time for anything else yeah. <laughs> you know? i'll
1: try to i'll try to find some time it's a it's a little it's a little interesting juggle of the the schedule but um i think i rather have it that way uh rather than you know punch in and punch out of of a a work job kind of a a setting
0: Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely well great well let's uh let's dive in to to your story yeah so how did you become interested in physical therapy it sounds like you were very active as a Mm -hmm. young kid loved sports Um, yeah yeah, what what drew you to that profession
1: I think, you know, it's similar to a lot of others' uh, story. I, I got hurt. I For me, it was uh, sprained ankles. And whether it's the right or left, you know, I'm playing basketball, volleyball. And, you know, in my mind, I'm like, wow, I haven't gotten hurt for a while. And boom, you know, lo and behold, you know, you know, one or two sessions after I think that, you know, I land on someone's foot playing basketball or, you know, I'm getting frustrated because I would go see. Uh, And it's not a blast, but, you know, go see physicians and my orthopedics, you know, surgeons would be like, okay, you sprained your ankle, go do this protocol and you should get better in some time. And I did, and I did get better. And I think just whether I'm putting it into my universe and I thought, wow, I'm, you know, doing good and I'm playing well and, you know, I get hurt again. And so, you know, it's always just a question there. And so, you know, going through, you know, undergraduate, um, programs I just was like okay you know what I, I think I better get into this because I enjoy playing sports and you know initially coming out of high school I wanted to install car stereos and alarms for a living you know and, mm-hmm. and that was a that was a big change you know to just have the, the best stereo on the block to let's see how I can help <laughs> people uh, you know run and jump better and you know, yeah. a little selfish trying to do that for myself first but mm-hmm. um, it started that way you know just a little question about movement and you know, see how I could improve my situation. And then of course, you know, it grew into, how can I help other people, you know, perform at their best and, you know, either that or, you know, turn the, turn the gates and, you know, get better after their injuries.
0: I see. Yeah. So it was really, it was really your injury. You're, you're spraining your ankle. It sounds like Mm -hmm. and interest in sports and movement, I guess it, it developed into this interest in movement human movement absolutely yeah and
1: you know I've had a lot of good people along the way to you know teach me in terms of you know what I would receive at the time there's things I would look back and be like wow I wish I really paid attention to that a little bit more or whatnot and maybe things would have been different but I'm at a good place where I am now so I can't really you know be too mad about the things that have happened of
0: course yeah sure sure so I obviously have not gone through physical therapy school. Mm-hmm. What is it what is it like? What's a normal a normal day like in in the physical therapy education program?
1: Well, you know, I've it's it's been almost 20 years for me and uh you know, it's I I know you know reference to another you know episode you had with your friend Faith Ford. Um, uh, you know, I know you folks covered, you know, quite a bit of that. Um, you know, it's a full day of classes, you know, we'll have, you know, your basic anatomy and phys and biomechanics, um, pathology, you know, what else am I missing? You know, then we have the therapeutic side. So your therapeutic modalities, therapeutic exercises, cardio, respiratory, pulmonary, uh, you know, we have a mix of that through, for me, it was six semesters uh, of, of schoolwork. Uh, so it was, pretty much fall, spring, summer. So I went year round because after, or when I went to PT school, it was going to be my second master's. Um, So I pretty much was like, let me get in and get out in the shortest (laughs) possible because I've been in school for a long time at that point, but um, I enjoyed it. Uh, You know, I think uh, I, at that time of my life, I, you know, struggled through some classes, of course, you know, they were pretty tough and challenging, but I knew how I would study. So the fun part was, you know, I had friends that, uh, you know, we went through classes from whatever it was, eight to five, maybe. And I'm, you know, call them, say, let's go play some basketball. And they're like, I got to study. And I'm like, no, let's, <laughs> let's go play ball. And, you know, I just used that opportunity to say, hey, what did what did Dr. So-and-so talk about this? Or what do we do about that? And my friends were very eager to show me their knowledge. And basically, mm-hmm. it was me saying, oh, wait, all right, I can... I can glean from that and yeah, I don't have to read that part of it anymore because I was mm-hmm. able to take that as a discussion and try to process that in terms of my learning. And I think that's one of the biggest things when you know I teach my interns and my students now is read something, but find the very next lab in the world, the real world, to try to make that skip over into your clinical practice. And Mm -hmm. that should be easier over time. Tough in the beginning, but easier over
0: time. Mm, I see. So I actually just finished a physical therapy service. I was working with Dr. Chinmai here in Lansing, the Lansing Rehabilitation Center. Mm -hmm. And I was just blown away by his expertise and his mastery of human anatomy. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, wow, is this... I imagine you guys have extensive education in anatomy, Mm -hmm. but I was wondering to myself, well, do they have like different types of of courses of anatomy where they're just so imbued with anatomy all day, every day, or is this Dr. (laughs) Chinmai just studying after he graduated and just mastering um, human anatomy through his (laughs) clinical work or is it a combination of both? Because, uh, you you know, we as uh, in, in the medical, I shouldn't say in the medical profession, yeah. but as, as physicians, uh-huh. medical physicians, you know, we have anatomy class for two years mm-hmm. and we dissect cadavers, but, oh man, I've forgotten so much since then.
1: <laughs> yes, no, I think the the easy answer, it is all of the above. Um, and then, you know, it's, uh, it's a daily continued work of saying, okay, what do I remember? Do I forget something? I mean, I think that's natural because of the, incoming information you know that we gain every day so uh, there's some bare basics that you know will be repeated and it becomes you know working knowledge but for me because I've been in school forever much to the dismay of my mom you know she's like hurry up and get out and get a job already at that time <laughs> but um you know undergraduate you know it was basic AMP, you know for the year um At a, you know, uh, what do you call a lower undergraduate level compared to an upper division class. And then um, for me, I I took applied muscle physiology because I thought that was really cool. Um, Probably took only about 15% of the material because I don't think I was ready, um, Mm -hmm. you know, for it now. But I seem to be reading a lot of that material now. Mm-hmm. Um and then my first master's in athletic training we did have um our program was with the first year medical students um at the university here at Hawaii mm-hmm. uh, so we I was in with the dissections um so we did it in three different courses um and then after that going to physical therapy school you know immediately after you know A&P in the first semester um you know taking a cadaver class in my second semester in addition to biomechanics and pathology Um, So we do we do have quite a bit of the courses. The difference that I saw between, you know, my medical school cadaver anatomy class compared to my one in PT school was uh, it was very systematic in what we did here in Hawaii in terms of the the dissections and reflections and viewing everything, whereas in PT school, we were a little bit more tunnel visioned on let's see what the joints look like. Let's look at what the muscles Mm -hmm. are. And it was for me, I had both sides of it. So I'm like, Oh, you might want to watch that nerve there. And okay, we kind of cut through that, you know, And so (laughs) it was kind of like, you don't know what you don't know. But at the same time, it was, it was fun to have that, you know, back to back course, um, in terms of the different programs. But, uh, you know, after that, it just becomes what am I reading online after you know, what clinical question do I have after taking care of a patient and you know what things come across the internet and I'm like wait how come what are we talking about you know I read something about the um, trapezius muscle and how you know its attachments are labeled and listed through the different fascicles and long story short I'm like oh this upper trap and mid trap is a little different from what I was thinking and so Mm -hmm. you know you dive in a little deeper and I have conversations with a network of people and it's been fun to just nerd out on those kind of things.
0: Yeah, definitely. It's interesting to see that um, even our understanding of human anatomy um, mm-hmm. is, is developing, is, is still being researched, especially the mechanical movements of the, of the live human body. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we're, we're still understanding Right? How certain muscles are affecting the joint through the gait cycle. Is, yeah. is that fair to say? Yeah.
1: No, I think it is fair. And I think, you know, there's a, a little deeper understanding too, where it, we can't get rid of the neurophysiological components to movement, um, whether it's through, you know, normal movement, you know, enhanced movement, or even, you know, injured movement. Um, but also, too, you know, looking into, you know, any of the, collagen and, you know, any of the endoparion epimysial factors, because there are going to be adjacent muscle fibers being sort of linked together by these collagen fibers. So that now what we would think, you know, in terms of, you know, undergraduate anatomy saying, if I flex my elbow, it's going to be biceps, brachialis, and, you know, brachialis. But why does my patient start to tell me that they have some tension in their triceps, when they're flexing their elbow, that doesn't make, Mm -hmm. you know, anatomical sense or kinesiological sense, but because of some of the adhesions they might've had, maybe for instance, that when they do try to flex their elbow, their triceps are firing up or activated or upregulated. And I'm like, Oh, now that's the, the clinical question that I have to go back. And, you know, luckily for me, I have some people that are in the anatomy lab. So I'm like, Hey, can you just look at this and let me know? And it's just a directed question. They give me some response and, hopefully it you know, fills a little gap or void and I could try to help my patient or client there.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, so you went through PT school, mm-hmm. you got a job as a physical therapist. How, how was that first job as a physical therapist? Was it getting out into the clinical world as a PT? Was it what you thought and imagined it to be? Um... And, you know,
1: yes and no. I, I I worked in a in a physical therapy department in undergrad, which was a hospital base. Uh, so I saw that environment, and I knew acute care was not for me. Uh, you know, it was a great learning experience, and and you know the therapists in there do great work for the people. Um, but I I knew I was going to gravitate towards sports medicine outpatient orthopedics. So. You know, for me, it was, a, it was a environment and setting that I knew because going through athletic training, you know, in the, the clinics and the training rooms there, um, I, I knew what it was going to look like. So the, the mistake I probably did was I went into uh, I went back to the university when I came home and we opened up a clinic for the university community. And the unfortunate part was I had, you know, my professors that were, you know, linked with me there, but I was primarily the one there. And, you know, as an early therapist, clinician, yeah, you need, I'd rather have been into a bigger setting clinic environment where there's more, you know, practitioners um, to mm-hmm. bounce ideas off. And I think the growth was a little bit stymied because of that, looking back. Um, but I think in the you know grand scheme of things, I had to be resourceful in terms of what I saw, be honest with myself with, oh, I did that well, or no, I did not do that well, or, you know, and then Mm -hmm. try to dive in and, and, you know, figure out where to go from there. So um, I I don't think it was the best to work in a, a solo practice, if you will, um, mm-hmm. or close to a solo practice. But um, yeah, and I and I think that was the biggest thing. I reached out to a lot of my friends at that time, uh, which they were gracious to offer me way too many opinions at times. But um, <laughs> you know, I guess yeah. I asked, so I had to get what I got. Um, but yeah, no, I, I I think that was that was the thing. And you know, um, about five or six, maybe four or five years after that. I ended up getting into, you know, a, a practice where there were more people and um, got into the golf world at that time uh, on the oh, is that right fitness side. Yeah. So about 07, uh, got into that world and really started, you know, uh, diving into, you know, assessing movement from a, a big, big picture, you know, how well does somebody squat or balance on one leg compared to what they do on my table in terms of range of motion and just really trying to dive into that and have a lot of questions on what is it about movement that's easy for some and impossible, near impossible for others.
0: Yeah, man, I, I am learning so, so much um, on every rotation that I've done, speaking to you, speaking to other physical therapists Speaking to my, obviously, my attendings, my osteopathic um, manipulative medicine attendings, mm-hmm. something that's really caught my attention recently is um, muscle inhibition. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, I, I think Dr. Zadkin, my my program director, was testing the strength of hip flexion mm-hmm. in a patient, and they just had very weak hip flexion. And then he said, well, I let's, let's take a look at their lumbar spine and see what their alignment there in their lumbar spine looks like. Did some muscle energy techniques and realigned the low lumbar spine. Then retested hip flexion. And it was, I mean, significantly improved, like mm-hmm. noticeably improved. And I was like, whoa, mm-hmm. yeah, why? I'm still trying to process it and understand it. Mm-hmm. But it mm-hmm. really caught my attention that – um, muscle tightness in one area of the body, or misalignment of the spine, ribs, fascial tension could affect another part of the body that I didn't, I guess, necessarily think was related.
1: Oh, uh, you're, you're going to go down a rabbit hole that's going to take you so many places. <laughs> with that, um, you know, I know. it's um, <laughs> you know, and and it's fun. You know, I mean, if if we were on video, you'd you'd see a bunch of posters behind me that you know, um, you know, I'm credentialed in different professions. So for me, it's, I don't really care if it's, you know, osteopathy, you know, napropathy, physical therapy, athletic training, chiropractic, you know, if it deals with human movement, uh, you know, they, the practitioners are, I'm sure, genuinely trying to improve the other person on the other side of the table, chair, whatever it may be. So um, Mm -hmm. let me see what they got. And, you know, it's the, The interesting thing of that situation is, you know, depending on the position that the person may be in might be part of the reason why they would have a quote inhibition, you know, of hip Mm -hmm. flexion. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if you're, you know, long sitting, you know, 90 degrees at the hip, your hip flexion won't be as well as if you were supine, Mm
0: -hmm. you know,
1: and, you know, muscle inhibition, you know, I had somebody who was about, I believe it was about Sixteen days post-op ACL surgery reconstruction, and you know it's really weird. I've never seen someone um, replace the steri strips over the incision site. They took a um, bone patellar bone graft. Mm-hmm. If the the, the strips were clean and pristine, seventeen days later. Now we all know if you had surgery, those those tapes are fraying at the ends and they're getting little wrinkles mm-hmm. from the movement. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, long story short, uh, you know, they ended up changing the the strips um, somewhat regularly. And I was like, wait, why are you doing this? And not, not really a good reason other than they thought that that's what they heard they're supposed to do. Um, but mm-hmm. there was an inhibition on straight leg raise. You know, their straight leg raise, long back is they got sort of dropped the leg a couple of times along the way the first 10 days. But mm-hmm. um, there was a major inhibition on it. And all we looked at was I basically bunched up the skin to try to let the nervous system realize that the, the tautness of the tape was now not there. And so now the ability for the nervous system to say, Hey, wait a minute. I don't feel the inhibition from the tape. I think that now I can throw some, you know, uh, information or activation to the hip flexors, to the quad, via the patellar, patellar tendon down to the bone, and that will help you lift your leg up. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's so crazy. You know, so what factors do we have? You know, we think, <laughs> you know, nervous, we think muscular, we think connective tissue. We've mm-hmm. also got to think environmental, mm-hmm. you know, and psychological. Mm-hmm. So there's so yeah. many different factors that can creep into that mix.
0: Yeah. yeah Yeah. you're right and the Mm -hmm. more that i'm doing omm and the more i'm in the clinic doing manual therapies the more i realize wow this may look like a simple manual therapy technique but wow there's so many factors coming into play like you mentioned the emotional the psychological um for sure trauma Uh, on all levels
1: You know, in in PT school, you know, they, my professors taught us, you know, the effects of manual therapy, predominantly joint mobilizations or articulatory techniques, um, you know, are predominantly mechanical, neurophysiological, or psychological. And, you know, in my head as a student at the time, you know, it was predominantly mechanical. I wanted Mm -hmm. to learn the mechanical effects because if it's shortened and limited, we're going to try to stretch it out and gain that motion. Mm -hmm. But I did not pay attention or probably dive in as much as I look back now and should have um, into the neurophysiological and with the biopsychosocial models of chronic pains predominantly, we got to look at the psychological or psychosocial, you know, aspects to why somebody does something right or wrong. Um, So, yeah, no, it's, um, it's definitely a big mix. And even with injury, you know, there's a technique called injury, I'm going to forget injury recall technique, and some of the things within FDM are similar in its sort of uh, principles Is saying, you know, like a folding distortion, if we injure it with a traction type injury, we tend to treat it with a traction type, you know, mm-hmm. technique mm-hmm. to try to get it for different reasons. And so it's, it's interesting how it all peels, um, peels away at its you know, basics and then how it looks very similar you know, in terms of how we treat or the philosophies that we go forward, which is really fun for me to kind of synthesize as I read more things or, you know,
0: experience more things that way. Yeah. And so maybe this would be a good segue into how how did you become introduced to the fascial distortion model?
1: Hmm. Um, you know, I would, I would read books, you know, kind of find some samples along, you know, Kindle or anything online. And um, I happened to find Dr. Capistrano's book, the Why Does It Hurt book, Mm -hmm. um, you know, found it. And, you know, at the time, you know, treating, you know, soft tissue work, there was quite a bit of ischemic compression to take care of trigger points, wait 90 seconds, you should feel a release. And, you know, at times I wouldn't feel it. I would literally have a timer on it for 90 seconds. And I'm like, you should feel better now. And of course they tell me otherwise. (laughs) Um, and so I'm like, okay, I am not good at this. I need to really learn something and get better and just, you know, and so I, I would just kind of scour whatever I could within my, you know, frame of mind. Um, and I happened upon his book on Kindle, um, Amazon Kindle, and got the sample, you know, book, cause I was, you know, too cheap. I didn't want to pay the $10 or whatever it was, $15 for the book, mm-hmm. but I read the sample and I was like, wait, there's six distortions. So there's potentially six different ways that I could be treating someone. Oh, hook, line and sinker bought the book you know, the digital and the hard copy and, you know, try to look for a course um, and ended up finding a course they were hosting in Maui, you know, it was around 2015, 2016, 2015, I guess I took my first course with them. So um, after that, just, I knew this is the world I wanted to run down and, you know, touch bases with one of my good friends, who's my business partner here. And he's, you know, we just said, yep. This is what we got to look at. So, um, you know, long story short, went through the the program, learned a lot,
0: and continued to try to help the the cause and spread the FDM. So, how how much can are you using FDM in your practice? Um,
1: in through all the different places that I go, I'd probably say a hundred percent in terms of it's my umbrella for my overall processing. Um, hmm. You know, in terms of whoever comes in front of me. Uh, you know, I will still obviously use, you know, techniques, principles, concepts within PT school, athletic training, everything, but it falls under the umbrella of the FBM. You know, the model is genius um, in, in a way to look at movement. Um, and then, you know, if I'm doing a overhead squat test, um, I'm thinking about, you know, what side's being compressed, what side's being elongated. That's not any different from what I've learned in PT school. But when I consider it as a folding, when I consider it as what is the chief complaint they're telling me or the body language they're showing me, now I'm putting it all into the mix. Um, And it's really fun. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, with that, it's blended into, I, I sometimes don't, Uh, care you know what system model it is but as long as i can help this person and the model is you know pretty much the guidelines for me to do that
0: can you walk us through the overhead squat test what what is that sure
1: um there's many different uh sort of associations or agencies doing this and so you know basically i would tell somebody just stand hip width apart feet facing straight or their comfortable stance, because they might have some, you know, hip torsion or, you know, whatnot. So I'll tell them to take their stance, hands will go overhead, whether they're using a dowel to hold on to, or just the hands being overhead. I'm going to watch them from the front, right side, left side, and the back. And I'll just have them say, you know, I want you to squat down as far as you can. I'm going to look at the ankles, I'm going to look at the knees, the hips, the torso, the position of the arms, as they lower, as they hold the lowest position, and as they come back up to a stand um you know within uh, my golf road, if they fail basically it's they can't hit the full deep squat and then return then there are a potential swing issues or swing faults that might creep in um and so later on i will break down the squat in terms of is the are the hips part of the cause of why the squat doesn't look well or is it because of the lack of dorsiflexion in the ankles or is it you know some pain process that they have and I might have to chase down that so within there yes there's still a biomechanical approach to this movement assessment but also too is what are the chief complaints they're telling me because of it what is the body language they show me what's the you know the examinations that I'll have them do on the table you know range of motion strength whatever it may be so it's very integrated, I think, um, you know, and having discussions you know, with other practitioners that don't understand the model or haven't taken the model and just having a talk with them. Um, but I think that's sort of the breakdown, you know, is really looking at movement from its biggest picture and then tying back to what is the strategy that the person has and, and choosing to use and then what's the potential impairment that they actually have or might be worn in non impairment, um, and then when I treat them, it's just go the opposite direction. Treat the impairment, try to improve the strategy that they have, and then hopefully that task will trans uh, the translation into the task will be returned or, you know, enhanced,
0: if you will. So, are you doing this test, the overhead squat test, because you're able to look at many different parts of the body in one fluid movement
1: um, y- yes and uh, yes and no if it's if, you know if I'm on the sidelines you know I'm not too often I'm on the sidelines anymore but um, you know if if I'm in a clinic uh, or if I'm in the weight room taking care of some of my kids you know there's one of many um, you know basically movement screens fundamental movements I can have them stand and reach for the floor or bend backwards turn right turn left, um, or a squat test so the squat test is one of a bunch of different you know movements that I could do if they don't tell me they hurt with a specific movement now if I have a dancer that's you know in with me I'm like when during your choreography does something bother you where you can't perform or if it's painful and so you know they you tell a dancer to squat it's not going to look like all other squats they will do more (laughs) of a a plie you know Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. or a a grand plie so you know to me it doesn't matter I'm going to see show me in the choreography what you can't do and when you can't do it and then they're going to have to describe it to me because You know, I might have to look up how to spell arabesque, you know, (laughs) um, you know, but it's but that's where it's fun, because I want to take care of someone that's in a wheelhouse, not of my own, you know, in terms of movements or sports, because there's no reason for me to show you what I can do for ballet or anything. But I can take care of somebody that tells me what they don't have, you know, ability to do there. Mm
0: -hmm. And so you're constantly thinking and Looking at the patient in front of you through the FDM model, through the six fundamental distortions of FDM. Sure, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's really, would you say it's kind of transformed the way that you are looking at the patient in front of you? I mean, pre uh. and post FDM exposure and, and taking those courses? Oh, um, 100% agreed. I, I mean,
1: I, I think back and I have talks with my friends and I'm like, I don't know. It's been, you know, it's growing in times now. So I, it's, I don't know where I would be right now. If I look at a person, you know, moving or someone's coming in for a first time, I would also, I would really have to think, how did I think through this? You know, I think it was a little more segmented, if you will. Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, let's look at what your range looks like. Let's look at what your strength looks like. And I would always piece it together to a a movement. Um, but I think the, the power of it was adding the body language, adding, you know, it's not only the body language, that's, what's very unique. I think about the FDM, um, because I haven't seen another system that understands and correlates the body language with the chief complaints and with the, you know, examination that we do and with the mechanism of injury, that's, that's the part that's so, uh, you know, transformative, I guess, in in terms of my, my practice. Uh, So I I think the short answer to that question is yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I appreciated the long answer though. Uh, Do you have any stories, Ken, that really stand out in your mind about a patient that came to you and you, you treated them with, with FDM, and you know, it was significantly, drastically got better. Yeah,
1: um, you know, I, I think a lot of times, you know, the the high intensity, you know, training or your CrossFit, you know, type of athlete gets a little bad rap. Um, you know, in terms of all oh, you do, that you're going to get injured. No, anything athletic can provide, you know, the environment to injure somebody um, or people to get injured in, and. So I had a a person come in, um, you know, shoulder, I think the diagnosis must have been shoulder bursitis um, slash radiculopathy, um, cervical radiculopathy. And so, you know, um, they come in and I'm going to run through my assessment, um, you know, and look at what they can and cannot do and appraise that. So, you know, long story short, uh, they... I believe that the mechanism was they started doing snatches, Olympic lifting, um, and, you know, tweaked it, you know, through doing the snatches and, you know, left shoulder problem. But the body language was a trigger band, uh, lateral arm trigger band, uh, which is a line linear pathway down the lateral part of the, you know, shoulder girdle down to the arm. Um, and the challenge was they had a hard time, abducting, you know, their left shoulder. And so, you know, bursitis and the radiculopathy would tell me I got to look at the spine, cervical spine, um, you know, and possibly treat the bursa somehow, you know, locally at the shoulder. Uh, You know, but again, knowing the model, you know, I I saw the mechanism um, from what they were describing and how they were describing it. You know, I saw the body language, you know, I listened to their complaints. And once I did the examination, uh, it was, you know, full internal rotation of their shoulder and abducting their arm was painful. So I said, all right, that's all I want to improve. If I can improve that because the other things were pretty good, uh, let's go from there. And so I believe I ran maybe two to three uh, trigger band techniques, you know, from uh, lateral, you know, elbow all the way up to the ipsilateral mastoid process pretty much the traditional or textbook um, pathways and you know within i don't know what it was four or five minutes or so because i'm sure there was a little breaks in between i was giving him um to breathe and (laughs) (laughs) um you know the the range improved and you know at that time i'm a little giddy because i think that was about you know the first year of, you know, learning the model, you know, after taking module classes. And I'm like, all right, try this, try that. And let's try the the one thing that was painful. It improved. I'm like, can you do anything else that makes it sore or limited? And he was good. Um, You know, a little sensationalized, you know, that was, that's fine. We'll get those wins. There's other times when I have people that, You know, take a little bit longer um, to respond to treatment. um, You know, pre and post FDM. (laughs) You know, learning the model. So, but that was
0: that was one of them. Are you talking like days to get better, or or just Uh, don't improve?
1: You know, some people. You know, whether I didn't hit on the right timing. I think of you know techniques or uh, you know care or if you know some people they do have a little bit of a psychological hold on things and so i'll have to i i because i'm allotted an hour to treat with my patients you know i always tell people compared to you know the physicians you know you guys have a shorter time frame so i can tease out a little bit of things uh, because of my time and Mm -hmm. so you know some people they take you know multiple sessions of course you know to improve because some of their trauma are a little bit more longstanding, and there's multiple variables that are potentially holding the, the potential threats in terms of movement. So once their movements are limited, it's not always, I think, partly a mechanical limitation. There's potentially an emotional or psychological hold that's on them that how can I tease out? Well, I want to allow the movement to happen. Can I present the person with their environment, being whatever manual therapies or exercises will allow the nervous system to say, okay, I'm okay with that movement. Can I get better now? You know, and I've had people that I didn't have to do too much of manual therapy. Some, you know, I had a surfer who you know, had an MCL um, injury, which was basically CDs and a small trigger band around his knee. And when we were getting to doing some agility type drills to try to test the ability for his knee to stabilize dynamic movements, because he's going to go back to surfing. When I moved a cone from him to hop two feet, he was able to step over and land perfectly. And then once I moved the cone another foot farther, so now all he has to do is a small hop I wish I had videoed this, um, I had an intern watching. He took a deep breath and a huge sigh and he didn't move. <laughs> and I was like, hmm. oh my God, it's only a foot farther. And you know, he was a 40 you know, year old fit surfer and he couldn't go from two feet to three feet. And I was like, wait a minute, this is not the function of his knee. It was held back by his, his overthinking and his fear. And I can say this because I've already talked to him and he says, yeah, that's, that's exactly what it was. So Mm -hmm. I moved back the cone to two feet because I needed to present his environment with safeguards. And so I told him, okay, step back there. So I had him step to two feet. I says, is there any pain? He says, no. I goes, are you sure? He said, no. I goes, okay. So he went back, he started again, then he moved over to the left side. And I just needed him to think, hear and feel. No pain, because the pain is the output of the nervous system. The sensations are the inputs that he's getting, that his, his his nervous system has to try to integrate and say, interpret and say, is that a potential threat? So once I took him through that, and we were able to talk him through, was that painful? No. Are you sure? No. Then I was able to move the cone back out to three feet. And I'm like, are you ready? He says, okay. And he did it. He hopped, and he hopped back to the other way. And I'm like, okay, that was fun. So that's where sometimes it is the model. So I'm going to treat the CD. I'm going to treat the trigger band. But then it's about human movement in my perspective. So at that point, it, I didn't need to treat anything else manually nor through an exercise. I would I appraised that to he just had a, a sort of threat or a, a fear. And it's just a fear avoidance at that point. So we took him through that process in his therapy. And he's been pretty good ever since i think his progressions have been quite a bit better and so i haven't seen him you know after that (laughs) because he's been good so that's the
0: fun i mean that that's really fascinating so so what kind of training have you have you (laughs) received in that like (laughs) (laughs) like neuro i mean it sounds like you're very good at that like recognizing (laughs) the threat realizing that mechanically it doesn't seem like there's any reason why this person cannot perform this action mm-hmm. there's something else triggering this this fear of mm-hmm. taking the jump of three feet rather than two mm-hmm. uh, by, by you... all accounts
1: is ridiculous at times right you know and even even my patient said I'm a, I mean I know it's only a foot farther and I don't want to go and I'm like absolutely I hear you I hear the fear from that sigh yeah but for some reason The nervous system represents that as too much. Can he load into that leg and absorb it? Because what he has thought previous, because I was the second therapist that he saw for his, for this condition was I might've had an ACL tear. Oh, but that was ruled out, but I might, I still have some pain. Oh, okay. Well, is it pain because the knee is not stable? Well, the bones are good. The joint is good. You know, Mm -hmm. the muscles are firing in, the nerves are firing to the muscles. So that should be all the things, you know, that are checked to say, well, you should not have an instability. Mm -hmm. Well, why do we have instability? Sometimes the person feels like that within the model, we might think of a folding distortion. Okay, let me go treat that folding, the potential folding. I treat it. I don't see any difference. He still has a limitation. I know he's a thinker, an overthinker. So I'm like, all right. Hmm, let's see how this works and so that's why i went the course that i did is there a specific um, training or whatnot this is what i think the model has helped with immensely is i think i become a better listener for clinical checkpoints here and there you know what does you know burning refer to in terms of the model with a trigger band you know how does you know, tight compared to, you know, stiff compared, you know, so it makes me kind of, you know, appraise a little bit more in that realm. Uh, But Mm -hmm. it's just, uh, I think that's why it's fun to just watch movement, you know, and it's like, what other potential reasons are there? And I, I'm, you know, not knowing you and your practice, but I'm sure you've had people that by all accounts, you know, range of motion, flexibility, you know, lab tests, whatever, maybe all look within a good reference range, but, they still will complain of something, you know, whether it's a pain or a you know deficit in movement. The challenge I have to figure out is, okay, if it's not mechanical, the bones, the ligament, the nerves, the muscles are all fine, but they still have a problem. I gotta think coordination. I gotta think proprioception. I gotta think psychosocial factors that might creep in why the person might not be able to move the way they want to move. And then we just try to follow suit with the easiest point And then build up to the point where we challenge them, you know, at the highest levels.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. That's a lot to take in, Ken. (laughs) (laughs) I got a lot of reading to do.
1: That's that's the crazy world in my head at the moment, which means I have five papers out that I got to figure out how to put them all together, <laughs> <laughs> especially because I want to throw some of these in for the module next week. So,
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So going, going back to FDM, are mm-hmm. there, or what are some of the limitations of the model, would you say, or are there? Um, you know,
1: I, I, I hear a lot of times, you know, I heard that thing hurts like crazy when you get treated and, You know, it's like, I'm going to come out with bruises and, you know, uh, true statement on both, both terms. Um, You know, I've had, you know, a a woman in her eighties, I'm, you know, I just tell her, hey, you know what, this is how you present. This is the thinking that I have. This is the way I would treat it. I'm going to start light because she had a trigger band and I'm going to start light. You know, I have to consider, you know, the the thinness of her skin because she's older and whatnot so obviously I'm not going to want to break skin you know doing a trigger band technique but I says you you I think you're going to probably bruise and you know she's like I don't care as long as I can move my arm better it doesn't matter so the communication part of it is there and so you know once I give them the expectations anything short of that people are typically typically okay with you know so you know it's kind of like always saying you know the best the best offense is that initial defense that you can get which basically means i'm going to educate you on how i want to walk you through this why is it different i've been called the 27th person and i'm like what do you mean 27 i'm like you're the 27th person trying to take care of my back and i'm like uh-oh <laughs> you know <laughs> <And> it's like <laughs> "Ooh, okay times are <laughs> going to be a little challenging for me here um yeah. but it's just the uh, the model allowed me to try to navigate you know, his situation, um, you know, there are times when I think sometimes it is. It's it's a it's a simple concept with complexities, mm-hmm. and so I think within that realm, people can understand if you point to it, you push on it, and sometimes they get better, but sometimes we don't remember there have been 10 plus years of clinical progress that backs you up saying, oh, I have already taken to consideration this and that, and I did my due diligences of my systems review. So, you know, I think sometimes it gets a little bit easy. And I think sometimes it can be lazy, you know, because some people will get success pretty, uh, you know, pretty immediate. Um, you know, we teach that, you know, some of the, the outcomes that you can get, within thinking in the model is some of the outcomes are immediate, but that doesn't mean that we don't think about multiple things. But to Mm -hmm. a novice clinician, um, I think sometimes they just see it and they don't think of the other things. So, you know, harping on that for some of my younger and newer clinicians, um, you know, I'm I'm working them, you know, that way, you know, like, what are the other things? Yeah, you got the results, but what about this? Did you consider this? No, okay that's my responsibility as an educator sure. you know, for him. So
0: him or her. Absolutely. Have you, yeah. have you had moments where you've treated a pa- patient with FDM and they just didn't get better? Uh, yes. <laughs> I have somebody
1: probably this week that, um, you know, I ran into the store and she's like, Oh my God, it is so sore. And so, you know, I haven't seen her follow up yet. Um, So I have to dive in, you know, it definitely, you know, got me thinking after, you know, speaking to her that on the weekend, it's like, okay, what was it? You know, was it the positioning? Was it the intensity? Was it, you know, the movements I'm trying to, you know, run through, you know, her descriptions, you know, her body language, you know, and all the things that we do uh, through our differential diagnosis in the FDM. Um, and it's going to come back to when I see her, I think I'm going to see her tomorrow. Um, I'm like, okay, remind me what it was like, what you feel, where you feel it? Uh, and, and just try to break it down, you know? So it's a frustration for me to kind of get to that point. Obviously, I would love people to feel better for sure. But, um, you know, that's, that's when it's the most important, you know, for me to, to really craft what I've learned, you know, and, and put it together to help people. Sure. So, it's it's a challenge otherwise I'm going to ask my friends I'm like hey this is the situation what what do you got what am I missing you know I, I obviously
0: missed something so we'll just go from there yeah and then back in 2019 you went to mm-hmm. I think with Dr. Capistran I remember when I was up working with Dr. Capistran in Fairbanks mm-hmm. he was talking to me about going and teaching the fascial distortion model to some people associated with the St. Louis Cardinals mm-hmm. baseball team mm-hmm. yep. can you talk a little bit about that um i believe i can (laughs) no
1: um (laughs) you know uh yes it was it was with dr capistrant and um you know he had mentioned earlier in the the year um that you know some of these things were in talks i'm like oh that's cool you know if i can help out anything let me know you know shameless plug you know and um, (laughs) you know later later in the year he says hey you know what are you doing you know at this time and i'm like nothing he goes can you make it down to st louis i'm like absolutely not even a you know hesitation at all and so um you know the long story short about that was I missed the first day because I missed my flight out of Seattle oh no it was terrible it was terrible I was there six hours before my flight because I didn't have anywhere else to go so I just was prepping my part of the talk and uh, I I missed the flight because they changed the gate on me and you know I apologized profusely but um I got there that night, the first night, and then, you know, the second day, uh, facilities were great, people were great, there was one of the PT ATs was actually from the same school, I went to PT school, and um, good mix, I'm looking at the picture on my wall right now of that time, and um, Mm -hmm. Zach Mass, Dr. Mass was up there too, from, I think at the time he was doing either residency or fellowship at UConn, um, University of Connecticut, um, Mm -hmm. their sports medicine side, so it was the three of us um, doing the teaching uh, for the Cardinals there. So I keep in touch with some of the guys um, that were in the class, um, you know, just to kind of see how it is. And social media allows that to happen too. So, sure. That's good. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome.
0: That's yeah. great. So we're coming up on on an hour here. Ken, yeah, are there? Yeah. Do you have any? I know it was a. It's been a phenomenal <laughs> conversation. <laughs> yeah, um weird. Any. Any last um, items you'd like to share or ideas you'd like to share? Um,
1: you know, just the model is great
0: with, you know, what you guys do with
1: OMM. You know, I have always wanted to, you know, work with, you know, osteopathic physicians. It's been, you know, I knew I wasn't going to go to medical school. Uh, so, you know, I, I love the, the PT world and the retraining. Um, and I think for me, just helping out with, you know, that, that the gap, so to speak, you um, you know, between, you know, the manual OMM and then how do we get people to get back and return to play, you know, whether it's, you know, daily life things or if it's sporting activities, um, you know, so there's tensioning techniques and stuff that I think I can help the nervous system appreciate in and around the injury, you know, mechanism, position and tension and whatnot. Uh, So, you know, that's been a fun thing um, to try to see, well, That's why sometimes people don't have lasting, you know, outcomes, positive outcomes. So maybe there's more, you know, progressive tensioning that we have to put the body under so that it can, uh, you know, see their, you know, new world or, or return to their, you know, former self in terms of being able to run jump pick up things or push things away from them or whatever. So yes. yeah, trying to put some of those techniques into order and try to get some write ups, of course, with that should be fun. Uh, yeah. One of the big projects for this year.
0: And, and in your mind, Ken, how should an OMM physician performing manual therapies work synergistically with a physical therapist?
1: Uh, you know, it's, you know, I just had a, um, a rotation with someone from DMU Des Moines um, come in and, It was fun, you know, having the exchange where it's like, "All right, let's see, you know, what the OMM world and everything's like." And it's just what should be said. It depends on the, I think, the um, relationship and the communication. But you know, if somebody writes to me, hey, they have, you know, this type of distortion. If we're talking about the FTM, this type of distortion, and I treated it, they got improvements in range of motion. Great. I will want to feel the gap between a basic range of motion in the office, let's just say shoulder flexion. And then now if the shoulder flexion translated to activity is, they have to be able to now strike a volleyball, you know, at the top of their, you know, hitting point. So now I'll try to put, you know, activities and the environment to now let the person successfully engage that. Because it's not just raising your arm up to that position. That's the first step you know, without any pain. The second step is now striking the ball at a certain velocity um, at a certain position so that for one, you can outcome with, you know, successfully hitting the ball. Two, not having any pain. And three, do it again and again and again as many times as you need to. So I think that would be it. Um, You know, if they say, you know, their range is good or, you know, their their muscle testing is good and, and they seem to be able to do some of these things within the context of that, then other things is hit the endurance, hit the you know, progression of you know, more tension because you're gonna have to strike it harder. And we can't ever test arm swing, let's say, at the same velocity because we're talking thousands of degrees per second. And we can't do that on the table in a, in a clinic, my clinic, you know, training room, whatever it may be. So the progression
0: of all those things will come into
1: play. For sure. well, thank, you for, thank you for
0: sharing that. And any, any plug you wanna make, Ken?
1: No, um, no, I mean, you know, it's, I, I, I love the podcast. I was listening to a bunch of them and you have, you know, a bunch of episodes with, you know, uh, the guys around the FDM and, you know, um, I would definitely plug, listen to all the other episodes in your podcast. I happened to listen. I can't remember somebody that worked with Dr. Fulford. Oh, Sarah Um, Saxton, Dr. That's right. Yes. Yes. That was, that was fun. Um, you know, so. I kind of got onto his book. So it's like, Oh my gosh. And I heard your, you know, podcast with her. It's like, Oh my God, I got to listen to that now. Uh, but other <laughs> than that, you know, um, inquisitive is my education company that we're going to be teaching a, a module two um, next week. Uh, so that will be fine. And then we're kind of going to work on more, you know, so any athletic trainers or physical therapists, um, you know, uh, listening. Uh, it can definitely go on that path of, you know, learning the model and improving your clinical practice for sure.
0: And if someone would like to get in contact with you, how could they do that?
1: Uh, The best way is just you can call and text or email me Um, email. Can I give that out for you? Yeah, sure. Please. Um, My email is just text or email me at eight zero eight DNA rehab. At gmail.com. And probably easiest way is that for sure. I'll be happy to touch bases or you know have a little nerd fest on human movement or anything fdm <laughs> yeah yeah we're
0: gonna have we're gonna have to have uh, another another episode about human movement or about oh, uh, neurophysiology retraining oh, I, better, I better start reading somewhere now then <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, me too <laughs> no that'll well, be a lot of fun
0: yeah thanks so much ken for oh. you know being so generous with your time and and letting me you know, giving me a good hour of your time in the in your midday there in, in Hawaii. So thanks so much.
1: Well, we're going to have to definitely do one here on the beach, um, you know, wipe out all the windy noise and you know, the, <laughs> the sun. Um, but, you know, yeah, definitely we'll, we'll have to do that live here in Hawaii one day.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Ken, thanks so much. You have a great rest of your day. Uh, you too. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Okay, bye. you all enjoyed and learned something from this conversation. I know I have some reading to do about neurophysiology and human movement. Thanks Ken for sharing your knowledge. Write a review in Apple podcast, subscribe to the podcast and if you have any questions click on the podcast link and leave a voice message. Thanks again for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.